Father, we've come to the time in this Easter Sunday morning service where we open your word. We thank you for the Easter story of resurrection. Thank you for its truth and its power. We want to know you, Lord, in the power of your resurrection. We want your resurrection to bring life to things that people thought were dead. Many are in this service today, O oh Lord, and they brought to this service problems, difficulties, hardships, cares, burdens, difficulties. But I know that you speak through your word to our hearts. In our dilemma, we should turn our ears toward your word. And I ask you that your word would truly be an inspiration and a light today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the cornerstone on which the Christian faith stands. Without the resurrection, there is no need for me to preach another sermon. Without the resurrection, there is no need to gather one more time in God's house. If there be no resurrection, then our faith is vain, our preaching is vain. We are false witnesses of God. Everything is useless without the resurrection. If Christ be not raised, then everything is lost and all of our hope is gone. Can you imagine what it was like for the disciples who had followed the Lord for three years all through Galilee and to various feast days in Jerusalem and to go through the awful ordeal of listening to him say, the time has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed and delivered into the hands of sinners. They just couldn't grasp that because they'd seen him speak to dead people and raise them to life. They had observed as he had spat upon the ground and put clay upon blind eyes and they began to see. They'd seen lepers literally cleansed before their very eyes when he simply said, I will be thou clean. They'd seen palsied limbs straightened. They had seen people take up their cot and walk who had been the victim of an awful disease. 38 years, one man lay at the pool and Jesus just simply said, if thou wilt be whole, take up thy bed and walk and immediately he got up and walked. How can someone with so much power, so much authority, be delivered into the hands of sinners? Be delivered into the hands of the strong, conquering Roman government, the oppressors, and be put to death well, you must realize it was a very, very disconcerting thing for all the disciples, all who knew about his preaching, saw in his delivering up to Pilate to be crucified, they saw a great defeat in that. And they saw all of their hopes hanged upon a cross, and they heard him say, it is finished. And the Bible said, and they all went away. They all went away. We get a little glimpse of what their attitude was like and what their mood was like in Luke chapter 24 when we find two of them walking on what is called a road to Emmaus. I preached sermon series about the road to Emmaus and I'll just briefly touch on it just to let you know their mood. The Bible said they were walking along a seven mile journey, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a little village. In fact, they were going back home. They were leaving the city of faith. They were leaving the city of God. They were leaving the city of worship, the city of Jerusalem, and were going their own way back to their house. Can you catch their mood there? They feel somewhat defeated. 
that all they believed and all they trusted suddenly was all gone. And they were on their way back on that seven-mile trip back to their own house, back to their own living, back to their own life, B.C., before Christ. And suddenly the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared with them and was walking along with them. They didn't recognize he was even near. Didn't recognize when he said something because the Bible said they had their heads down. They were disconsolate. They were so broken. They were so terribly affected by what they'd seen and heard for the last few days that all their hopes were, were gone. And suddenly one was standing beside them who asked them a question. Hey, I preach sometimes that Jesus is the answer. But in this case, the answer was asking a question. I've always preached that he is the truth, the life. But here he was asking people. He wasn't really asking because he wanted information, because he knows our hearts. He was asking so he could get their attention. What are you guys talking about? What are you discussing? They said, oh, you don't know? Have you not been around Jerusalem the last few days and, and known that this man called Jesus has been crucified, hung on a tree, and was buried in a tomb? And we thought that he was there in that tomb, but suddenly we realized he's not there anymore. And we don't know what's happened to him. All we know was we had trusted. We had trusted. We had hoped. We had believed. We had invested all of our lives in this man and now we don't know where he is. We don't know what's happened to him. And the Bible said, oh, slow of heart to believe. And he would have walked on, but they took him inside. When hope meets people who are hopeless, when grace touches people who are doubt and worried with fear and fright and frustration. Something marvelous takes place. And they sat down and they were eating and Jesus broke the bread, the Bible said, and then they realized, well, that's the Lord that's with us. And suddenly he was gone. I love the, that next verse. It said, and they returned. Oh, God loves it when we return, doesn't he? God loves it when we're going the wrong way. We're going back to our way. We're leaving his way. We've lost hope and we've quit trusting and we're going back to our life and our home and our family and our work and what we were doing before Jesus. But suddenly they turned around and the Bible said, and they returned. Oh, I love it because God knows the future, doesn't he? How many of you know that God knows the future? God knows the present. God knows the past. Oh, there's nothing, the Bible said, there is nothing that is unknown to him and nothing. All of our lives are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, the Bible said. So he knows all about it, doesn't he? I remember when I was preaching in Korea and on down to Manila and Tokyo in a trip to the, the east back in, back in the day, I guess you would say, and we crossed a line there. I was watching the screen when the plane, they do kind of reassure you that you're still in the air. Especially when you're flying over the ocean. That's of critical importance. And I, I watched that little figure of that plane as it was making its way. And we crossed a line there that was called an international date line. In other words, I flew out of today and flew into tomorrow. Amen. 
And as I, I flew on, we landed in Seoul, Korea, and I, I called back to tell Debbie and the kids that I made it. And I was talking to the kids, and, and I think it was Brian that asked, Dad, what time is it where you are? I said, oh, son, it's already tomorrow here. Tomorrow? How can I be in today and you be in tomorrow? And I said, you've got to understand there's a date line that's out there in the middle of the Pacific, but when you fly over it, you go out of today and you go into tomorrow. And I'll never forget what he said when he, as he says, hung off at that young age. He didn't say hang up. He said he hung off. When he hung off, he said, hey, Dad, could you tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> well, see, we serve a God who inhabits eternity. He not only has been my God in the past, he's my God in the future. He knows my present, but he also knows tomorrow. And he knows the tomorrow after that. And that's why he speaks to me in peace because he's already there and he already knows how I'm gonna come out and he already knows how that we're gonna be victorious and God's grace is gonna be sufficient. So he says to us, peace, be at peace. But you don't know, it's today here and I've lost my trust and I've lost my faith and I've lost my hope. But he says, well, I'm in tomorrow and I know everything's gonna be all right. The disciples somehow realized everything's gonna be all right. So they turned and they started back to Jerusalem. And when they got back, they met with the other uh, disciples and they told them, we've seen him too. We've seen him also. He is alive. He's not dead. He's alive. Oh, the fact that Jesus is alive brings hope to all of us. It brings to us a, a, a peace and a calmness that that fear of death and hell and the grave has lost its sting and lost its power because our Lord Jesus has conquered death and hell and the grave. Isn't that a great thing? Why don't you give God some praise for that? For us to understand properly, we need to understand that this was a Jewish event. At that time, it was a Jewish event. The disciples were Jewish. Jesus was very Jewish. He went to temple. He read the Torah. He worshiped like all other good Jewish people do. His disciples were Jewish. His mama was Jewish. His aunt was Jewish. His cousin was Jewish. He knew the scriptures, quoted the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. He was all about Judaism and was a worshiper in, in Judaism. But he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Would you believe that in the last year there's been more concern about Jesus among Jewish people than all of the other 2,000 plus years of history? Why then are Jewish people becoming so interested in Jesus? Even Albert Einstein, who was probably the smartest guy, you know, and all the inventions and all the things, he made this statement. He said, you can't read the Gospels without feeling the presence of a living Jesus. Wow. Isn't it something for a Jewish person, a genius like him, to say, when I read the Bible, I feel something. When I read the Gospels, 
I can feel the presence of the Lord Jesus. You see, that's what makes the gospel come alive is the presence of the Lord Jesus because he is the word made flesh, isn't he? No wonder the word pulsates with the reality of a living, risen Lord Jesus. Well, you have to understand that these scholars, these Jewish scholars, I've read so much about Orthodox rabbis, thousands of them that have written books, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and books, books like uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ written by people with Jewish names that you wouldn't recognize any of them. But they would figure that uh, what they believe about Jesus is, is that he was a great teacher, he was a great rabbi, and none of them can deny that something happened to the body of Jesus. Now they've got several explanations. One of them is that the disciples stole him. Yeah, that the disciples somehow came and stole the body of the Lord Jesus and then started preaching that he had risen from the dead. You see, Jewish people have this problem separating Old Testament events from what Jesus did in the New Testament. It was constantly being said that the scriptures might be fulfilled, but they just never could make that connection where the psalm said, he will not leave my soul in hell. He will not leave me uh, alone. He will, he will resurrect. No wonder Jesus said, if this temple be destroyed, I'll, I'll raise it up in the third day. They just couldn't get that through their mind. So in order to stop anybody from stealing the body of the Lord Jesus, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, went to Pilate and said, we want you to make sure that nobody moves that stone. And the Bible said that he gave them what they wanted and assigned uh, uh, guards to stay there and put a seal of Caesar upon the stone lest anybody should come to try to steal the body of the Lord Jesus. But I want to tell you, Matthew chapter 27 Verse 11 through 15 says this, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that had been done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Well, I'd just like to ask you, that, that ignores several facts, doesn't it? That they stole the body of Jesus. Had the body been stolen by his followers, all that would be needed to disprove the disciples' claim would be to produce the body. And no body has ever been produced. And it never will be either. Not one sinew, not one fiber, not one bone, not one carpal, not one thing. Nothing has ever been discovered of the body of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you today that he is the first fruits of them that slept. 
He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's already received a glorified body. No, the world will never produce a body of the Lord Jesus because his body is not here. His body is at the right hand of the throne room of God making intercession for you and for me. Hallelujah. If those dejectors of Christianity could produce just one fiber of his body, they could collapse and destroy everything Christians believe and stand for. But thanks be to God, we know in whom we have believed. And we trust and we are confident of this one thing, that his body is in the presence of the Lord right now. Another fact. There were Roman guards at the side of the tomb. How then could any of Jesus' followers stolen his body? They couldn't. Fact three, there was a giant stone covering the tomb, which would have taken several people to move. The guards could not have overlooked such an operation. Fact four, historically we know that the early followers of Jesus were persecuted for their belief. They were offered two options, either to renounce their belief in the resurrection or be killed with the Lord Jesus. It seems unlikely that any of the disciples would have done anything like that and stolen the body. Fact five, whatever else can be said about the original followers of Jesus, they themselves certainly believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that they did not steal his body. Fact is, the angel, which several people could not do, the angel came and rolled the stone away and the angel sat upon the stone and observed the Lord Jesus as he rose from the grave. Thanks be to God. No, they didn't steal his body. There's a, what is called a swoon theory. A swoon theory is they gave Jesus some kind of drug and that he faked his death on the cross. How could you fake a death on the cross when they took a spear and stuck it in his side and forthwith came blood and water? Somehow they believed he survived that wound and somehow they believed that he in the tomb survived three days with no food and no water, suffering the awful crucifixion and all the tragedy of that, that somehow after three days with no food, no water, and all this gory, bloody body he was in managed to roll the stone away himself and escape without the soldiers seeing him. And that's called a swoon theory. Well, it would take a swooner to believe that, wouldn't it? Hey, it takes more faith to believe that than it takes to believe that he arose of his own power. Then there is a theory that there were many, many resurrections. There were many resurrections. There is a great scholar whose name is Schoenfeld. He accepted most of the New Testament as reliable. In fact, he would be what we would call a Messianic Jew. He accepted the fact that Jesus did great miracles. He accepted the fact that his teaching was profound, that no man spake like this man. He accepted all the things about the Lord Jesus except one thing. He never got saved. 
Oh, he believed in the resurrection. But he never did believe the rest of the story. Why would you believe in a resurrection but wouldn't accept salvation by grace through the blood of Jesus? Wow, if you've got faith enough to believe what the rest of the Bible says, why can't you believe what the Bible says about Jesus being our, our salvation and the propitiation for our sin? Hey, if you go to study, let the Word of God speak to you and let the Holy Spirit convict you and lead you to the saving grace of Jesus. Hallelujah. Fact is, Jesus, because of his shed blood and his, his grace extended to us, he is for once offered for the sins of the whole world forevermore. Every priest standeth daily offering sacrifices that can never take away sin, but this man, somebody say, but this man, but this man hath once offered himself for the sins of the whole world forever. Oh, that can't be overlooked. One of the great evidences that Jesus is risen is the people who are sitting in this room today. What are you doing here? If they stole him, then what are you doing here? If he was drugged and somehow survived, then what are you doing here? The example of so many lives that have been changed in so much that there are millions all over the world today celebrating a risen Savior. Amen. That's a fact that can't be ignored. The fact that he has many, many followers that still celebrate his resurrection. His resurrection is sure. His power is positive. He is not in a grave somewhere. He's not hidden away somewhere. It's not tucked away in a vault somewhere. Jesus is alive today. He is risen indeed. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. In all the world I see him. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Hallelujah. Come on and give God some praise. Every time that we go to a cemetery, we celebrate the lordship of Jesus and the resurrection. Alfred Edersham, the British scholar, author of the last century, his book, The Life and Times of Jesus, was originally published in the 80s and still considered one of the most authoritative sources on the subject. His Jewish view of Yeshua predated the more recent wave of Jewish scholars. He concluded this, the importance of all this cannot be adequately expressed in words. A dead Christ might have been a teacher and a wonder worker and remembered and loved as such, but only a risen and living Christ could be a savior. Wow. Only a risen Christ could be the way and the truth and the life and the life giver and says such preach to all men. And of this most blessed truth, 
we have the fullest and most unquestionable evidence. He is alive. Even his dejectors have concluded he is alive. He did resurrect. The claims of Jesus stand alone when compared with the sayings of other religious leaders and to punctuate his claims, there is a historical event which stands as a challenge. It's this, the resurrection. You see, two years earlier, there was another Messiah, Mendel Schomburg, and he died, and all of his followers expected him to resurrect. But can I tell you, he did not resurrect. And all of that movement was dispersed and defeated. What does that tell you? That tells you that if the death of the one who says he is a Messiah is not followed by a resurrected Christ, a risen indeed living Jesus, then that is not a true Messiah. Jesus proved his Messiahship by the fact that he arose on the third day. It is so important for us that we grasp the meaning of that, that he lives, he lives within our hearts today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is such a powerful study about what the New Testament says about Jesus and who he is and what he does. In 15 verse 12 through 23, Now if Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. This last week we planted one of our beloved members and at his graveside I said these words, I am the resurrection and the life and he that believeth in me though he were dead yet shall he live again. Wow. And this verse says, if there is no resurrection, if we've seen the last of our loved ones, if they are perished and gone forever, then our preaching, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If that's this event we look forward to that's called the resurrection of the dead, if that is not an event that takes place, then the resurrection of Jesus is not so either. That's what that verse says. Read it for me. I didn't say it. I put it on the board for you to read. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Jesus has been raised. If we don't have something to look forward to that's called the rapture and the coming of the Lord and the catching away of the saints, then all that we're doing here is nonsense. All that we're doing here today has no meaning and it's useless nonsense. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus did rise on the third day and because he lives, we will live also. And on that great getting up morning when death's prison bars are broken, we shall rise, hallelujah, we shall rise. There's going to be a resurrection. The Lord is coming. There is, be not deceived. The day of the Lord will come. It will come. 
But if there be no resurrection, verse 13, no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If Jesus is not risen, then you have been victimized by an awful hoax. If Jesus be not risen, then I've preached 46 years for nothing. If Jesus be not risen, all of your testimonies are false. If Jesus be not risen, then everything we claim about our relationship with God is untrue and we're false witnesses of God. If Jesus be not risen, look at it. Our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. What you say you believe means nothing if Jesus is not risen from the dead. There ought to be somebody on their feet hollering, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus, because I know that you are living, because I know that you are alive, because I know that on that third day you came out of that borrowed tomb. Thank you, Jesus, that you defeated death and hell and the grave for me. Thank you, Jesus, that in you there is life. Thank you, Jesus, that all the dread and the worry of death and hell have no claim on me. I've thrown that chain aside. I've got rid of that burden. I know that Jesus' blood avails for me. I know that he shall stand upon that last day upon the earth. I know that all power is given unto our God and the resurrection power is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixteenth verse, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you're yet in your sins. In other words, if he's not resurrected, then he's no savior at all. If he did not rise from that grave, then you are still lost and estranged from God and on your way to a devil's hell. But thanks be to God. Christ is risen. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. All of the funerals, hundreds of them that I've done over the last 32 years, I'll never see those folks again if there be no resurrection. If Christ be not raised, then we can sorrow and we can be defeated. But I want to tell you, Christ is risen, so we sorrow not as those who have no hope. Our hope is in a risen Savior. Our hope is in a resurrected Christ. His Messiahship is vindicated and validated by the fact that he overcame death and hell and the grave. If in this life, verse 19, we only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Can we all quote verse 20 together? But now, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You're too quiet. But now, but now, 
now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You ought to shout while you say that. Because that's our proclamation of victory. But now, but now, is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. What does first fruits mean? Jews gathered their harvest. First they would go out and gather the first fruits and they would offer that unto God. First fruits always belong to God. God always wants first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. God always wants first. And then the rest always amounts to so much more. Christ was the first fruits. He was the pattern. He was the epitome of what God has in store for us in our glorious bodies. First fruits. Pastor, does that kind of mean that my body's going to be fashioned like his? Well, there's bound to be a scripture somewhere about that, isn't there? Yeah, I studied. I got it. <laughs> Philippians 3 and 20 and 21. Who shall change our vile body or our mortal corrupt body? Change it. Who shall change our vile body and shall fashion it? What does fashion mean? Thea can give us a good definition of fashion. Fashion it. That means to shape it, make it look like. Use for a pattern. Boy, that's good. You mean Jesus is the pattern and I'm the work and he's going to fashion my glorified body like unto his own glorious body? That means mine's going to be like his. Boy, there ought to be shouting on the hills of glory. I'm going to have a body like his. David said, when I awaken his likeness, then shall my soul be satisfied. 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Beloved, now that we are become the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. Because eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for them. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know. Anybody know anything? I said, do you know anything? But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, what did his glorified body look like, Pastor? 
He appeared in the upper room. Many would say, how did he get into that room? They, they were scared. They were frightened. They were afraid and had the doors all locked and jammed and shut. How did Jesus get in that room where they were? Well, we'd have to call that guy that said he stayed three days in the tomb to get that answer. The correct answer is, I don't know. All I know is, he got in there. He's God, so I don't have to understand how he got in there. But when he got in there, there was an unbelieving disciple that had boasted and said, I won't believe. I put my hand in the print of the nail in his hands and his feet. And Jesus said to that disciple, I love this, he said, handle me, touch me, and see that it is I myself. For a spirit, a ghost, a spirit hath not flesh and bone like you see me have. Tells me something about my body. My glorified body is going to have flesh and bone because it's going to be like his and he had flesh and bone. Behold, my hands and my feet. His body had hands and feet. My body is going to have hands and feet. What are you going to need your hands for, Brother Jerry? Clap them. I'm going to clap them. I said I'm going to clap them. The Bible said all of heaven rejoiced and praised the Lord so loud that it sounded like thunder. David used to laugh at me for doing my thunder imitation. Wouldn't it be something to just be in praise one time where it sounded like thunder? Wouldn't it be great to hear people in unison worshiping, praising God so loud, so intense that it sounded like thunder? Oh, great God, you better know I'm going to clap them. What are you going to need your feet for, Brother Jerry? The Bible said they would walk in and out the gates of that city. Glory to God. I'm going to walk all over heaven. I said I'm going to walk all over heaven. Praise God. Isn't that great to know folks that have, have a limp in their walk and can't get along too good? One day, one day. You're going to get around like Jesus gets around. And I'm going to tell you, he gets around. Glory to God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a body, flesh and bone, like you see me have, but he didn't say anything about blood. Left his blood somewhere. I said he left his blood somewhere. What do you need blood for, Brother Jerry? Dr. Chalk could tell us that every seven years you receive a complete new cycle of cells 
in your blood. Your blood carries oxygen. It carries healing to your organs. It repairs and it heals. In fact, the Bible says the life is in the blood. You see, if I cut that finger right there, my blood will carry white cells that will come and fight and fetch, form a scab, and heal that thing up. Hallelujah. But when I get my glorified body, there won't ever be anything to be healed up. There will be nothing there to hurt. There will be nothing there to harm. There'll be nothing there to injure. So that glorified body you have will never need healing. Glory to God. So it won't need any blood. The Bible said flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God anyway. So thanks be to God for a glorified body. I wish I had a lot of time to preach on the glorified body. But it's Easter, isn't it? With what body? But now is Christ risen. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. What does that mean, Pastor? The Bible tells us in verse 31, Paul said, I die daily. I die every day. Every day, there's a death and a burial and a resurrection for Jerry Irwin. Every morning, every day, I die and get resurrected to walk in newness of life. This, this thing of resurrection is for every one of us. Listen to what Paul said in, I believe it's Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Wow. And I die daily. I'm crucified every day. Boy, isn't that great? In that same scripture, he said, the life that I now live, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to this one. I'm just about through. Come on, Connor. 2 Corinthians 4 and 10. Paul said this, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. I carry Calvary around in my heart all the time. Boy, somebody ought to be shouting and running out. Debbie tells me, don't try to make them shout, they're listening. Okay. Always carrying about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That means Calvary is in us. That means Calvary is in you. Have you got Calvary in you today? Lord, we're going to have a good altar call today. Less than a third of us have got Calvary. My God, if you're saved... You're always carrying about in your body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The cross, 
is so much a part of you that every day of your life you make a visit to that cross. I always, listen, what does always mean? I said, what does always mean? I always bear in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I've got Calvary in my heart all day long. I've got Calvary in my mind every day of the week. I've got Calvary in my soul, Calvary in my spirit. I carry it around with me everywhere I go. While I'm working, I've got Calvary in my heart. While I'm visiting with my family around the supper table, I've got Calvary in my heart. While I'm getting ready to go to work every morning, I've got Calvary in my heart. When I'm driving my school bus, I've got Calvary in my heart. Everything I do and everywhere I go and everybody I meet, I've got the dying of the Lord Jesus always in me. Why do you carry Calvary around with you, Pastor? That, that I may have the life of Jesus manifest in my body. Glory to God. What that means is I've got Calvary in my heart and my mind and my soul and my spirit, but it doesn't stop there. That's the dying of the Lord Jesus. I want the life of Jesus to be made manifest in me. So I can't just have the cross only. I've got to have the resurrection too. Because a cross without a resurrection just won't save anybody. A cross without a resurrection has no power. A cross that doesn't have an ending that results in the life of the Lord Jesus there's nothing to celebrate about. I carry around in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Let me quote to you what I quote every time I do a, a funeral. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? 1 Corinthians 15, 35. With what body? Thou unlearned, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. We can't get our glorified body until we go through the process. It's first got to be planted. There's first got to be a funeral and a visit to the graveyard. Wow. And that body that thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be. Glory to God. You realize what I'm saying to you? That when we take that hearse and go out here next door to Forest Lawn, and we pull that casket out of that hearse, we set it on that device and lower that body down into that, that uh, vault. Thou sowest not that body that shall be. We sow the body that has been, but the has been is not the shall be. Glory to God. I'm looking forward to a shall be, aren't you? Hey, I don't just live with a has been. I'm living because of a shall be. Now you see through a glass darkly, but then. Have you ever had a but then? I said, is there anybody in this house ever had a but then? Do you live by the power of a but then? Or are you still looking through the glass darkly? Praise God, there's going to be a time when the scales are going to fall off. Ask the Apostle Paul what life is like when the scales fall off. When the scales fall off, glory to God, you'll see Jesus. You'll see things you've never seen before when the scales fall off. 
Hurry, Pastor, we're wanting to hunt eggs. I'm hurrying, I promise. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's flesh of men, flesh of beasts, flesh of fish, flesh of birds. They're not the same. There are bodies that are terrestrial. There are bodies that are celestial. Glory of them is one. There's one of glory of the sun, another glory of the stars, another glory of the moon. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You mean we're going to be different? You mean Missy's not going to look like me and I'm not going to look like her? Right. As one star differeth from another star in glory, so shall also the resurrection of the dead be. Well, what am I going to look like, Brother Jerry? We shall know as we are known. Some of you are sad. You thought you was going to trade that old ugly mug of yours off and get you a pretty picture to put on your license. We shall know as we are known, but with a glorified body. Will I know my loved ones? Yes, you'll know your loved ones. They're right now alive in conscience in the presence of the Lord. Those, that daddy, that mama, that husband, that son, that daughter, that cousin, that aunt, they're alive right now in conscience. They know where they are. They know where they've been. And they know where they're going. They've got a shall be. Lord to God. They're anxiously awaiting the sound of the trumpet. Where there's going to be a resurrection. They're going, to, they're going to beat us. The Bible said, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. My Lord, if I wasn't so dignified, I'd shout. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, when is then? After the dead have arisen. After the trumpet has sounded. And the dead have arisen. Then, we which are alive and remain, after they've come up out of that grave, then we who are standing here looking shall be caught up in the moment and the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound. I said the trumpet shall sound. I went to a church one time to preach over in West Tennessee at a camp meeting, and they started church every night with a shofar. They had a ram's horn the day and go, sounded about like that too. They began service with that. That's what Paul had in mind when he said, the trumpet shall sound. The trumpet shall sound. And the dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. First time I see Jesus, Haley is in the air. Oh, I thought we was going to just kind of, kind of walk in, in town. No. First time you see Jesus will be in the air. Well, they tell me the pressure is pretty tough up that altitude, Brother Jerry. Has anybody thought about that? I don't think God is really concerned about the pressure at five miles up in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The trumpet shall sound. And the dead shall be raised, what? 
incorruptible. What does that mean? Never grow old. Incorruptible. What? No diseases. No pains. No ache. No arthritis. No TB. No leukemia. No cancer. I said no cancer. No diabetes. No heart failure. Incorruptible. So when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the same. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Listen, but thanks be to God. I think you need to stand up on that one. Y'all look like that kid that his mama made him come to church today and he wanted to watch Paladin or something. We need a resurrection, don't we? God give us a resurrection. A Holy Ghost resurrection. God give us a Pentecostal resurrection. God, give us a move of the Spirit of God resurrection. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable. What does it mean to be unmovable? Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What a verse that is. Because he lives. Come on, sing. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds my future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Oh, praise God. You sounded so good. Would you sing that one more time for me? Just that little verse. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds my future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. In that upper room that we talked about earlier, the Lord Jesus celebrated the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, take and eat. This is my body which was broken for you. In like manner also he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the New Testament that is shed for you. Take and drink ye all of it.
God, we worship you this morning and we praise you that you were wounded for our transgressions. You were bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon you and with your stripes we are healed. Surely you have borne our sorrows. You born and were bruised for our iniquities. We praise you, God, for substituting for us and dying a death that we deserved at Calvary. It's right that we remember Calvary and we remember the resurrection. What a great day this day is, God, with all of our brothers and sisters in this house right now celebrating around the table of the Lord. I thank you, God, for every one of them, and I ask you to give them a great season, Easter season. Keep them safe from danger as they travel. God, just let this Easter season be a lasting reminder in our hearts that because you live, we live also. Dismiss us now from this place, but not your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and God go with you is our prayer. You have a great Easter.